after last week's message. Um, Ecclesiastes can be a depressing book. And I pictured some of you guys just kind of laying on your couches at home. You know, you haven't shaved in five days. You have an 11 o'clock shadow, especially you women. Um, <laughs> Dorito crumbs all over you. Mountain dew cans piled to the ceiling. What's the point? Right? It's all meaningless. Laundry piled a mile high. We're all just going to die. Who cares? Right? Well, I'm here to tell you this week, um, in chapter 2, it actually just gets worse. Um, but, but at the end, th- there is a, a ray of hope. There is a ray of hope, so just, just hang on. Um, and I do want to mention, many of you have been known and been praying, Pastor Chuck, um, our dear Chuck, he had knee replacement surgery this last week. First time Pastor Chuck had been in the hospital since 1952 when he got his tonsils taken out. I could have lived twice between Chuck's surgeries. Um, and, but it's been an amazing process. We had some bumps in the road, but God has been good. Um, he is back home now. He and Janice are both doing well. Um, so praise God for that. I um, just want to pause for one second to pray for him and us as we get into this this morning. God, we thank you for your faithfulness and the way we see that, that imprint of your faithfulness in the life of someone like Pastor Chuck and Janice and the way that they have so faithfully served you because of your faithfulness to them and in them and the example they are um, to us. And I pray for healing. I pray for comfort and peace for Chuck and Janice in this time that we as a church body can throw our arms of love around them as you express your love to them through us. As we open up this book of Ecclesiastes today, Father, I pray that we would honestly examine it, um, that it's your power, not ours, that you would convict us where we need convicted, that you would encourage us where we need encouraged, that we would not just hear a message to be entertained or to, be, um, to think about other people in our lives that this might need to apply to, but, Father, that we would apply this to our own hearts in our relationship with you. We give this time to you, uh, for it is yours, and it's in your Son's name we pray. Amen. Um, a lot of today's outline in, in chapter 2 comes from, I got help from David Jeremiah. I want to give a shout out to, to Jeremiah and to Matt Chandler, two guys who really, brothers in the face, who have helped me as they've already gone through this series before, um, have really helped me along the way. Brief recap, if you weren't here last week. Solomon said in chapter 1, everything under the sun, everything here on earth, observable by our five senses, is completely and utterly meaningless. There's no purpose to any of it at all. Okay, that was the cheery note we ended on last Sunday. Um, this week, we're going to dive in, and there's three things that Solomon's going to show us here in chapter 2. Um, he first is going to show us the trivial pursuits that, that he engages in in his own life, a little personal testimony, case study from Solomon. And then he's going to show us the troubling problem with those trivial pursuits. And then finally, there's going to be a temporary relief From the agony of the meaninglessness of his life, there's some true pleasure that Solomon finds. So here, first of all, in these trivial pursuits, Solomon is going to search for meaning. Remember we said last week, he is using his five senses, the empirical data that he has, things that he can sense with those five senses. He is going to explore with those senses six areas of life. And see if in any of those, as he turns over the rocks in each of those areas, is there meaning and purpose and ultimate value in any of them? And he's going to take us along for a ride in the personal journey of his life. 
And we're going to see him explore um, this three different areas for pleasure in chapter 2. First of all, he's going to look for it in wild living. Secondly, in work. And then finally, in wealth. So first of all, he's going to go to wild living. Let's enter into the party scene with Solomon. Verse 1, he says, I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. Solomon, first he tries pleasure. Solomon has one motto in this stage of his life. If it looks fun, do it. If it looks fun, do it. He, he abstained from no pleasure before his eyes. Now, we're going to see here, when Solomon does something in his life, he does it to a degree that you and I could only dream of, could only hope for. Like, everything he does is, is supersized. So, because some of you might be thinking, okay, he tried pleasure, but, like, does Solomon party or does he party? right? Like, how, what, what degree does he take this to? Well, look at, in First Kings, talks a little bit about these parties that Solomon would put together, just the food alone. When you look at the, he, it says it would be the equivalent of, he would use 1,400 gallon buckets full, gallons of choice flour, right? Not Walmart, like, great value, off-brand flour. This is the best flour in all of the land. He would use 3,000 gallons of meal for these people. And then, and then we get to the meat. It says in 1 Kings, he would use 10 oxen from the fattening pens, 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep or goats, as well as deer, gazelles, roe deer, and choice poultry. Enough wild game to give PETA a collective heart attack, right? He is having a raging good time. Most commentaries I looked at estimated that Solomon would be having 15 to 20,000 people at these parties. Night after night after night for weeks. So he goes, yeah, you know, you're having a great time at your little backyard Bible, uh, barbecues, right? Your bring your own meat type parties that you all have. But he goes, you have, you have nothing on the kind of parties that I was throwing. So when, when Solomon, uh, uh, when he approaches pleasure and laughter, he says in, in, in the next verse, he talks about pursuing laughter. He's, this isn't like him flipping through a joke book, okay, or having tickle fights. Like Solomon is, he's bringing in the best comedians in the land. He's got Seinfeld coming right to him, okay, Kevin Hart those blue-collar comedy tour guys. Never understood their popularity. Um, maybe for some of the older generation, it would be the equivalent of a Johnny Carson or a Cosby. Too soon. He would have these Vegas-style epics where 20,000 people are coming together to party. But you know what, what happens after you give yourself to pleasure for a while? I, I spent... I had a little bit of a break right during Christmas break between when I finished school and I started here at the church full time. And when you have some downtime like that, you can often kind of take the path of least resistance. So I found myself staying up late, sleeping in, like binge watching Netflix series that I didn't even care about, right? Eating copious amounts of Christmas goodies. And at the end of it, like, did I feel good? Was I, was I satisfied? Was I, was I, like, this is what I've been, like, living for. I can't, finally, no, I'm, I'm bloated, I'm lethargic, and I finally, you know what, I'm just ready to actually contribute to society again and jump back in. Like, I did not find satisfaction there. And on a much larger scale, that's the exact conclusion that Solomon comes to. Look at verse, end of verse 1. But that also proved to be meaningless, 
Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? Here's what Solomon realizes, and he says himself over in Proverbs. He says, laughter can conceal a heavy heart, but when the laughter ends, the grief remains. So he said, laughter's good, but in the end, it doesn't fix your problems. Pleasure and laughter cannot heal a heart. It can mask the pain, but it cannot heal the pain. So then he says, well, laughter didn't work, so I'm going to turn to the bottle. He says in verse 3, I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. Now Solomon does, it's interesting to say here, he says his heart was still, his wisdom was still guarding his heart. This is not Solomon just becoming an open alcoholic. Um, he still knew what he was doing, this, this experiment that he was on. And I, I do want to say here, the Bible never just out and out condemns alcohol. It just doesn't. In fact, Paul says a little wine is, is good for the stomach. Um, and so it, in, in, in moderation, into the pure, all things can be pure. But just like with laughter, too often it becomes a temporary anesthetic For things that will not, ultimately, it will not, it cannot heal our hearts, it cannot fix our pain. And it's a dangerous road to walk down, I believe, even to lean on, depend on, even a glass of wine or a cold one, just to take the edge off. I've had a hard day, I need, and that's the dangerous word, I need it. I need it. A dangerous road. So Solomon, he, he, he goes through this. Eventually he gets tired of the laughing of sort of this college raging party scene. And he says, it's time to grow up. It, it's time to grow up. So he goes to the work scene. He, he tries working. He tries building. He says, I'm going to make a name for myself. I'm going to leave a legacy. And so again, Solomon style, he turns to productivity. Verse 4, I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. Now, it actually says he builds houses, not even just one house. The temple, as many of you might know, um, it took seven years to build, to build God's house. It took seven years to construct Solomon's house. It took him 14 years, okay? Just saying. And he says, I built houses. And later on, it says that he built houses for all of his wives, okay? And if you know Solly boy, okay, that's no small undertaking, he had 700 wives. Okay, that's a project I'm not even sure hall quality builders could keep up with, okay? He is going to town. He says, I'm going to build this, basically this city for me and all of my wives. Now, um, there can be, I think, there can be a sense of pride and accomplishment in, in building a home. I hear. never done it myself. Um, but you, you look at it and go, I did that. And a sense of, of permanence and a sense of, of accomplishment. And I think in the same way, are there any green thumbs out there in the crowd today? Anybody who kind of feels that satisfaction from planting or growing or working in your garden? Well, Solomon, he went down that road too. And he says, yeah, I, I love your rhubarb patch and your little gathering of forget-me-nots in your yard. But he goes, look at, look at what I did. And he goes in five and six. He says, I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I attempt to water four plants in my apartment every week. 
And I feel a great sense of satisfaction and accomplishment when I actually remember to do that. I'm like, yeah, totally remembered. My, I actually have a reminder in my phone, 10 o'clock on Wednesday nights, water the plants, you moron. Um, but Solomon goes, that's nice. I built a forest, okay? I planted uh, Solomon National Park. This is what I've done. I went to the extreme when it came to, to the world of, of gardening and planting. In fact, the pools of Solomon, these were reservoirs um, that were used to just for, to water his gardens and his parks. You can still see them today. This is an aerial shot of these pools. They, they still exist. Um, this massive undertaking that he goes under. And, and for many of us, you know, we've... We, some of us tried the party scene, just the pleasure scene, and that didn't work. So we turned to the American dream, right? Get a good career, build a home, have a nice family. And, and what we happens is then we turn to scurrying around and trying to be efficient and productive with our lives and stake our worth to that. And in his book, Culture Shift, David Henderson, he spoke to this, and he said there might be something more subtle behind all of our frantic activity says this, and, and see if this would apply to you. He says, our lives, like our daytimers, are busy, 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 full of things to do and places to go and people to see. Many of us convinced, and hear this, that the opposite of an empty life is a full schedule. Remain content to press on and ignore the deeper questions. Perhaps it is out of fear that we stuff our lives to the walls. Fear that were we to stop and ask the big questions, we would discover there are no satisfying answers after all. It says it's like slamming your head into a brick wall. Never tried that. Um, but as long as you do it, you can't feel the pain. But the second you stop, can feel it. So some of us keep so busy because if we slow down, we actually have to stop and think and consider the bigger questions, the purpose of our life. So some of us have taken pleasure route, drinking route, you know, sort of the laughter route. Some of us, the more culturally acceptable, responsible um, route of business and productivity. But Solomon says, listen, I took both of them to their extremes. I took, I went farther down that road than you could ever even dream of going and they both led me to the same stinking place, meaninglessness, no value, no pleasure ultimately found in my life. And, and, and so then finally he goes to the third one. This is the comfort scene. He tries wealth. He says, I've tried partying, I've tried working, so I'm just going to take a step back and enjoy all of, all of what, I, what I've done. And so Solomon goes on what's probably history's largest shopping spree. Verse 7, I bought male and female slaves. I had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. Back then, those things were big indicators of a prominence and wealth. Then in verse 8, I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. Can we talk about Solomon's wealth for a second? In 1 Kings, it talks about what he made every year his annual income, it was 25 tons of gold. Now, if we were to make a modern equivalent of what that would look like in dollars today, every year, Solomon was making $304 million in gold alone. Just in gold. Now, later on in chapter 10, it talks about, in 21, verse 21, it says, I had more silver than could even be counted. 
and he had many other sources of income. It's very safe to say Solomon was making more than half a billion dollars every single year. Now, there are some people today who, whose lifetime net worth would, would be something like that. Very, very few individuals who have ever experienced that kind of money coming in every year, let alone, these are hard assets. This isn't paper money. This isn't just something in, in numbers in an account or a computer floating around somewhere. These are physical assets. So imagine Solomon's life of luxury. And he says, I, I bought slaves. I had slaves for my slaves. Like Solomon is living the good life. He's probably waking up at like 11 in the morning, right? And, and he's got somebody there cooking his breakfast for him. Someone cutting up his breakfast for him. Probably somebody chewing up his breakfast for him. Here comes the airplane. You know, he's just chilling out, right? Then from that hard work, he goes on to probably one of like 12 massages. He's got the manis. He's got the petties. He's got everything. He's just a life of luxury. He can do whatever he wants. He doesn't have to lift a finger ever again if he doesn't want to. And then it says, and I love this, because I acquired male and female singers. So like if Solomon's listening to a song and it comes on the radio, he's like, that Taylor Swift song is awesome. He doesn't just download it on his iPod. He just buys Taylor Swift. <laughs> like, he just brings her in, says, all right, shake it off, shake it off. You know, come on over. We will sing together. I just buy these singers. I'll just acquire them. And then he says, in a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. Now here's where Mr. Solomon is famous, right? 700 wives and 300 concubines who are there for one purpose only. We have grade school kids here, so we won't get into that. I'm overwhelmed with the thought of dating one. Okay? That freaks me out. Solomon experienced in his life uninhibited sexuality. He wanted it, he got it. Hair color, personality, height didn't matter. Every fantasy could come true. He made Hugh Hefner look like a monk. And we'll stop there so I don't get in trouble from the elders. But he goes down the wealth, he goes down the work, he goes down the wild living roads, and this is the troubling problem. The wild living, the work, and the wealth, they didn't satisfy, they didn't separate, and they didn't succeed. I'll I'll show you what I mean by that. Verse 10. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Verse 10, Solomon says, I'm not going to lie. It was good. I had a good time. It was fun. Those things that I did, they were enjoyable. But, but, those, the laughs, the women, the mansions, the manicures, the parties, the friends, the sweat from my own work, it was enjoyable, but, verse 11, yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. He says, picture chasing the wind. I was chasing these things, and the same result came from when I would chase the wind and I grab after it. What comes when I open my hands up? They are empty, and ultimately I found no satisfaction. Tennis player from a while back, Hanna Mandlikova, 
Am I saying that right, John? Something like that? Tennis star, she was asked how she felt when she would defeat greats like Chris Everett Lloyd and Martina Navratilova. Now, some of us, those names mean nothing to John. He's like, oh, that's impressive. Um, when she would defeat these people, they would ask her, what, what would it mean? What did it feel like when you would defeat these greats? And this was her response. She said, any big win means that all the suffering, all the practicing, and all the traveling are worth it. I feel like I own the world. She says, it feels great. And the follow-up question, they said, well, how long did that feeling last for? And in all seriousness, she said, for about two minutes. For about two minutes. A lifetime's worth of dedication and sweat and blood and tears. And she says, the feeling, the satisfaction of getting what I wanted, it lasts for two minutes. And then it's on to the next thing. There was a survey done by the World Values Group. They ran this analysis on um, 65 countries, and they called it the, the happiness index. And what it would do is it would kind of measure the satisfaction or contentment of the citizens of this country, um, the, the specific countries. And the fascinating thing was, at the top of the list was Nigeria, which is this poor little country on the west coast of Africa. Followed by that was Mexico, Venezuela, El Salvador, Puerto Rico. It, it was some of the poorest countries in the world were at the top of the chart of finding contentment and satisfaction in their lives. The U.S. was 16th. Great Britain was 24th on the list. And the survey actually showed that wealth and work success at your job, it actually had very little to do with happiness and satisfaction. And there was a really interesting line at the end of the report. It said, survey after survey has shown that the desire for material goods, which has increased hand-in-hand with average income, is actually a happiness suppressant. The more you have, the more you want, and the less it satisfies you. See, what Hannah and what the citizens of the world both discovered is the same thing that Solomon did. Wild living, worth, and wealth are fun, and they are satisfying for about two minutes. For about two minutes. They will not, in the long run, satisfy us. Secondly, they won't separate us. Solomon says in verse 12, Then I turned my thoughts to wisdom and also to madness and folly. What more can this king's successor do than what has already been done? He says, where do I go from here? And now he does say, I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise have eyes in their head, while the fool walks around in darkness. He goes, if I'm given the choice, I'm going to walk around in Fred Meyer. It's better to do so with my eyes opened than my eyes closed. And I don't think anybody here would argue with that. Like, oh, my eyes, they just keep getting in the way. Life is so much easier blind, right? No. He says, people who employ wisdom, it is better for them. Like, think about financially. Like, you plan ahead, you save, you're financially responsible, you'll save yourself from going broke, from experiencing heartache, and the IRS coming up to your door. The NBA players, many, many professional athletes, they find themselves foolishly spending their money and thinking, I have these millions of dollars, I'm good to go. But by the time they're 33, they're out of the league and they have no penny to their name. And because they've been living above their means, they have nothing. And there's many millionaire athletes who end up broke before they get to the age of 40. So he acknowledges, hey, wisdom will save you from some of the consequences of foolishness and sin. But, but, imagine for a moment, do a little story here. 
you're the guy on the left, okay? And you live a life. You're responsible. You show up to work on time. You work hard. You scrimp and you save and you plan ahead and you follow kind of the biblical principles in, the, in, in your life. And, 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 then, and at the end, you get this awesome retirement. You get to, you know, go down to, you know, Florida and, and live on the beach and everything's good. And then this guy next to you, okay, this knucklehead, he spends the same time you did slacking off showing up to work late. He's like stealing all of your office supplies. He's nodding off during meetings. He, he doesn't live wisely. He never gets a bonus. He never gets a raise. He never really even gets a good retirement. He's this miserable person, okay? You both die on the same day. And, and, and you are placed in, in coffins side by side. And a complete stranger walks up and looks at both people in those coffins. That person has no way of identifying who was the happy-go-getter and who was the miserable slacker. Grant at Peninsula Memorial Chapel put a smile on both of your faces. He says in verse 14, there's the wise and the fool, but I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. They both die. Henry Ironside said it this way, death is the great leveler of all men. Whether rich or poor, whether wise or foolish, whether powerful or weak, renowned or obscure, no one can rise above it, no one can cheat it, and no one can escape its eventual claim on his life. He says, I don't care how wise you've lived or how foolish you've lived, you die. Job said it much more succinctly, I came naked from my mother's womb, and I will be naked when I leave. You come the same way you go. It's not going to separate us. It says, these, these, these things that I've tried, they don't separate me from anybody else. We all die. And then thirdly, he says, it won't succeed us. He says, I hated, verse 18, all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person, my predecessor, will be wise or foolish. Yet they have, will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and my skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. For a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then they must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. This is meaningless and a great misfortune. Solomon says, I have worked painstakingly hard for all of my wealth, for all of the things that I have done with my hands. I have put together a pretty impressive kingdom. And then he looks over at his sons. They're running into each other, knocking over each other's heads with golden rattles that he's given them. And he looks at him and goes, and I am leaving all of this to this crack squad? Like, the, the, are you kidding me? Like, and, and actually we do. We see in scripture, Israel takes a nosedive after Solomon. I mean, they go into ruin and are eventually taken into captivity two different times when the nation never really recovers. And it's not fun to think about, but all the saving and banking and liquefying of your stocks and your bonds and your 401, 404, when you die, it's all out of your hands. And no matter how savvy you were with it, it goes to somebody else who's probably going to squander it. Now Solomon is not saying, don't think ahead about an inheritance for your children. The very same guy said in Proverbs, oops, I got the... 
says a good person leaves an inheritance for their children's children. So not only to think ahead for your kids, but for your kids' kids. Again, it's, it's good to plan ahead. But his point here is the accumulation of that wealth will not last. It doesn't go with you beyond the grave. It does not endure time and eternity. And that's why Jesus said in Matthew 6, Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy. And thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. Solomon says, listen, the work, the wild living, the wealth, it was good for a time, but it didn't last. It didn't satisfy me. I can't take it with me when I go. I'm going to die, and all of these things here are meaningless. And then he turns, finally a note of positivity, he finds where there's true pleasure to be had. He could have at this point thrown up his hands in despair like some of you are thinking about doing and go, what is the point of any of this? But then he remembers something he had learned as a youth and he employs it here. He says in verse 24, a person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their toil, in their own toil. This too I see from the hand of God. Now you say, well, wait a second, Solomon. You just said that pleasure and work are meaningless. Like, is, is he going schizophrenic on us? Is he changing his mind? I don't understand. Well, there's a very subtle difference to what he's saying here, and he explains it a little bit further in verse 25. For without him, for without God, who can eat or find enjoyment? He says, if you don't see these things here on earth that you can experience with your senses, if you don't see these as given to us as a gift from God, they can never be enjoyed. The only way to enjoy them is to see them as from his hand. And eight different times he's going to come back to this refrain in this book. And it's like little rays of sun peeking through this dark cave of despair. And what he's saying is here under the sun, here on earth, things are not yet fully redeemed. Christ has not come back yet and made things as they should be. But even here, right now, in the midst of where we're living, what we do have is a gift from God. He says the pleasure, the work, the wealth, the wisdom, he says, they're a good meal. They are merely appetizers of what is to come. They are merely appetizers of what is to come, but they are good appetizers. You see, there's a hurdle that I think many of us, especially long-timers in the church, that we need to be able to get over when it comes to God. Our Father lives in heaven. He is not a killjoy. God is not up in heaven going, no! Oh, sorry. No fun. Quit enjoying things, right? Stop it. You need to homeschool your children. You need to have 12 of them, right? Thus declare the Lord. You, you cannot listen to any, you can only listen to lame music, you cannot do anything enjoyable on Friday nights. You must stay home and turn the lights off. No fun. No enjoyment. And if you do try to have fun, if I see you crack a smile, I'm going to kill you and send you to hell. Right? God is not up there trying to rob us of our joy. The ironic part is that God is the 
author of all joy. In fact, we cannot experience any pleasure apart from him. Think about this for a second. How did God start mankind? He creates Adam and Eve, and he puts them in a garden naked. Okay? One man, one woman, no clothes, and a ton of fruit. And he says, go have fun. Okay? Now, in church, oftentimes, sex is kind of a risque topic, okay? Kind of, kind of not one you, you want to you walk down, especially because of how much it's been perverted by man. By man, not by God. But God puts two naked people in the garden and says, be fruitful and multiply? How does that happen? Okay? Huh? How does that happen? How do you multiply? Okay? This was God's idea. Like that, the pleasure that comes from intimate relation with each other, that is God's idea. That was not a design defect. It was God's idea. In fact, there is no pleasure that we can experience on earth that did not ultimately come from God. We have perverted that pleasure, but originally it came from him. And that's why in his sermon, uh, C.S. Lewis, um, it's called The Weight of Glory. It's a sermon he gave. And he speaks to our relationship with pleasure, and this is what he has to say. He says, If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. The Stoics believe if you were having fun, it couldn't be virtuous. It couldn't be good. Okay? You had to be miserable if you were following Jesus. And oftentimes, can't that kind of creep into our own theology? Like, we all have to wear muted tones and just kind of frown and walk around serving and doing God's work, and we can never, if we're enjoying something, then it can't possibly be doing his bidding. He says, that is not Christianity. Desire, pleasure, it's not. And he explains, he says, indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem, and here it is, that our Lord finds our desires not not too strong, but too weak. He says the, the problem is not that you, that you seek too much pleasure. It's actually that you, that you don't seek it enough. And, and here's, he clarifies what he's saying with that. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. No, his point is, he says, we are far too easily pleased. See, we settle for simple pleasures that the world tells us will ultimately satisfy us. When he says, no, 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 you're settling the problem is not that you're pursuing pleasure, it's that you are settling for slinging mud pies at each other in some ghetto instead of finding the beauty that comes of, of God and the relationship with him like a holiday at the sea. See, here's what happens. And I want everyone to feel a little uncomfortable right now. You've been sitting here too long, just chilling out. I've been doing all the work. So I want you to put your hands out. Okay, put your hands out in front of you. I gave you an example. It's like this. Palms out, cup together, Okay. Very good. Very good. Put down your iPhone for a second. They'll text you back later. Put your hands out. And I want you to picture in your hands the things in your life that God has entrusted to you. 
all the things that he's given you, your house, your car, cars, money, your children, your spouse, your grandchildren, okay? These are all here in your hands. I want you, we need to recognize that every single one of these things is a gift given to us from God designed to give us pleasure. See, James 1 says, every good thing comes from heaven. It is a gift from God. Every single one of those things. And we are managers, we are stewards of the gifts that he's placed in our hands. But what this means is that we must never close our hands over top of each other. But we have to remain open so that he can use those things and take them out of our hands as needed and refill us with more things when needed. See, because our impulse is to clutch and to clench. Like, he gives us something, and we gotta, we got to keep a hold of it. we got to control it, because it's going to get away, or he's going to take it back, and I'm going to freak out. So we're trying to grab on and hold on and maintain and control these things that he's placed in our hands. But the problem with that is when we do this, we're actually limiting God from using those things for our good and his glory and from refilling us with heaven's resources. And as long as we can't loosen our grip on these things we actually prevent ourselves from enjoying the things he has put in our hands and from ultimately enjoying the one who has placed those things in our hands. You can put your hands down now, thank you. Here's the real point. When we open our hands and our hearts, we find ourselves never lacking or wanting because it is not the gift that brings us the joy, but it is the giver of those good gifts. It's God himself. And when we find our treasure and our pleasure in him himself, we echo Job who says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I can have nothing and I'm still satisfied because the true pleasure is not mudslinging. It's the treasure of God himself and the holiday at the sea with him. These gifts are simply God's abundantly creative way of saying, I love you. That's why the psalmist, he says, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. If I do not have God, nothing in my hands is of value. It's meaningless under the sun. Food and drink are awesome. Like, I love eating. I really do. I can't wait after the service to eat, okay? I'm looking forward to that. Hard work is good and it is satisfying. But if we don't see these things as a trail of crumbs that lead us to the one who gave them to us, then we confuse the gift with the giver. Paul says in Romans 1, we exchange the truth of God for a lie and we worship and serve the created things instead of the creator God. And I love it, C.S. Lewis says, he says that these things are a scent of a flower we have not yet seen. These good things that he's given us create us a longing in our hearts as appetizers for the real meal when we sit down with him in his presence one day and only there will be true satisfaction. What gifts have you confused with the giver? Maybe for you it's entertainment. Maybe for you, it's hard work and productivity. Maybe it's your family. 
Maybe it's your money. And I know as I went through this, the Lord convicted me of quite a few of them. And I pray that God would give us the grace to see that these things are from his hand. And only when we understand that will we find true joy, true satisfaction, and true meaning in our lives. I wanted to finish with a a song that was read to me at my graduation, when I graduated from Bible school back in 2004. Um, and this has stuck with me. This has been a song. We don't, we don't sing it here at, at church. I'm going to have to integrate that at some point. But these are the words, and then we'll pray. So once it was the blessing, now it is the Lord. Once it was the feeling, now it is his word. Once the gifts I wanted, now the giver own. And once I sought for healing, now himself alone. All in all forever, only Christ I'll sing. Everything is in Christ, and Christ is everything. Father, it is sweet. It is satisfying. It is meaning-giving to trust in Jesus. And apart from him... There's nothing but chaos and despair and hopelessness. Father, you've given us good things, but I know the tendency of my own heart is to take those things, hold on to those things, try to control those things. I make those things into ultimate things, into the end themselves, and in the process, I pervert them, I I make them idols, and then I fail to enjoy them as they were originally intended to be enjoyed because I fail to see them as the scent of a flower that I've never seen. I fail to see them as a bread of crumbs that leads me back to the bread of life. And Father, I pray that brothers and sisters here this morning would come around me and confess with me the way that we've confused the gift and the giver and that we've come to the end of those things. I pray for your grace to let us come to the end of them, for your grace to to find that there is no meaning and satisfaction in those things so that we might lay them down, open our hands up so that you can give and that you can take, but to know that there is no greater satisfaction than knowing Jesus as our Lord, as our Savior, and as our treasure. Oh, for the grace to trust you more, God, to find you as the good giver of these things so that we might enjoy them, but that ultimately we might enjoy you. It's in your precious name of your Son, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.